If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one nearby in a, underneath a seat in front of you uh, if you'd like to follow along. Philippians chapter 2. And I'll go ahead and read beginning in verse 5. Almost lost my voice with all that singing. That's not good. You all sounded so good. Let's read beginning in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself, laying aside the honors and the glories of heaven, and becoming an infant, so that you might save us from our sin. Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring this wonderful text and directing us to glorify the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I pray that that is what would happen in this room and in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Christmas Day, a day when uh, a lot of us kind of feel for a few fleeting moments here and there, like kids again. That feels good for a short while, every once in a while. But most of the time, I don't miss being a kid. Are you with me with that? I I kind of prefer kids, unfortunately, and and at least you have this ahead of you. Uh, It's better to be a grown-up in many, many ways. I don't miss being a kid. I like being an adult. In spite of the fact that I had great parents and, and, and had a good childhood, there are certain things that I just don't miss about being a kid. Example, walking to the bus stop on a February morning in Pennsylvania. It, it was cold. I mean, cold like the last couple days, almost every day. It was early. We typically left the house a little before 7. I know for some of you that's like lunchtime. For me, that was early. It was a long walk for a young kid, nearly half a mile. It wasn't uphill both ways, but it was pretty bad. And what sometimes felt like the worst part, I had to walk with my sisters, one three years older than me and another three years younger than me. And I'm ashamed to say that as a 10 or 12-year-old, I didn't always appreciate my sisters on those early cold mornings. I have a feeling they didn't always appreciate me either. 
And as you can imagine, when we were cold and sleepy and headed toward a a long day at a place where we really didn't want to spend the day, school, we weren't always at our best. We would bicker and argue. Tempers would flare. My older sister felt responsible for us, and she wielded that responsibility with an iron fist, and I resented her for it. Instead of kindness, patience, humility, those walks were often filled with pride, anger, and selfishness. The thing is, as much as I wish I could say that I have left those things behind and that, that, that I don't engage in the pride and the selfishness and the bitterness and the resentment anymore, my family could tell you if they were, uh, they won't because they're nice and they're, they're polite, but if you ask them and they were willing to be honest, they would tell you that those things are often, all too often, a part of my life even today. Much more prevalent than the kindness and the patience and the humility. And maybe the same is true in your life as well. But if it's true that more often than you'd like to admit, bitterness, pride, bickering, and conflict arise in your own relationships, then you are not alone. In actual fact, the earliest Christians battled all the same impulses. And in the case of the church at Philippi, the tension was so thick that the Apostle Paul had to address it with a letter all the way from the city of Rome, hundreds of miles away. A lot of the people in Paul's life during this time had devolved into pride and a competitive spirit. Where Paul was living, he was actually living under house arrest in the city of Rome, awaiting capital trial before the emperor. And many of the people around him were actually preaching the gospel out of jealousy for him and wanting to get him in greater trouble than he was already in. Paul was dealing with pride and bitterness and conflict. In the church of Philippi, it was a little better. Two women who both loved the Lord and had devoted their lives to serving Christ somehow had gotten into a fight and an argument that just wouldn't end, and Paul has to address them in front of the entire church in writing by name. He says, I beseech Euodia and I beseech Syntyche, please agree in the Lord. Like, it doesn't matter what you're fighting about. Just get along. And it's into this tension, this culture of criticism and judgmentalism that Paul speaks here in chapter 2. He says, is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any way that the work of Christ makes you feel encouraged? Is there any comfort from love? Like, don't you find rest in the reality that Jesus loves you? And that your church family loves you? Is there any fellowship in the Spirit, he asks? Like, don't we all share a common bond that, in that we as a church are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that true? Is there any affection and sympathy? Can't you see things from your brother's perspective or your sister's perspective? Don't you empathize with them in any way at all? Then please... Please complete my joy. I who am in danger of being condemned and killed at the hands of the emperor any day. Please complete my joy by getting along, walking in love, by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by living in one accord. What we're going to see briefly this morning is that there is a pathway out of pride and bitterness and anger and resentment. And 
There's a way to loosen the knots if your heart is tied up tight. And the answer is profound, but it's also very simple. It is to clothe ourselves with the mind of Christ. In other words, it's like taking the Christmas spirit, the act of the Son of God in becoming an infant baby and taking on that mindset. That is what's going to heal us from that bitterness and that unkindness. What is that Christmas mindset? Here's what it is in a nutshell. It is to remember that Jesus' glory is actually his humility. Jesus' glory, what makes him amazing, what makes him wonderful, what makes him worthy of worship is actually his humility. We're going to see that here in a moment. Over the last month, we've been exploring the reality of the Trinity, a reality that is only possible to know anything about because of the birth of Jesus Christ. And today, I want us to just ponder a truth that is equally mind-blowing, the truth that the Son of God, one of the persons of the Trinity, God himself, became man. And the humility that that represents. What an incredible act of humility that dramatically changes the world and can change us today if we allow it to shape our minds. And our passage gives us four realities about the humility of Christ that make it the grand occasion of his greatest glory. Here's reality number one. First of all, Christ's humility is surprising. Christ's humility is surprising. Before we can feel the impact of Paul's amazing claim in verse 7, we have to back up a little bit and understand the contrast that he begins to make in verse 6. He says, though he was in the form of God, though he was equal with God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Don't skip over this. Christ's humility is surprising because you would not expect a person of such power and such glory and such wealth and such amazing splendor and goodness to ever lay any of that aside. It's surprising, isn't it? I mean, think of it this way. Imagine, some of you have already thought about this. You're thinking it's almost the new year and you might have some goals, right, for 2023, And maybe you have some really ambitious goals for your financial situation, your professional career, your family, your relationships, whatever it is. And imagine that in 2023, all of your goals, you met them. You're wealthier. You're healthier. Your career is humming. The people in your life love and respect you. How likely would you be to give any of that away? Think about it. If you met all the goals that you have in your life, all your ambitions, your wildest dreams, and in this next year you got all of that stuff, how likely would you be to give it away? Not very likely at all. Nobody would do that. Now, people who achieve their goals, they're kind sometimes. They're generous. They want to give people things. But even the most generous aren't going to lay aside their entire lifestyle for others. And uh, by the way, ancient people understood this too. They talked about gods who came in the flesh. But it was never to come in the form of a a baby laid in a manger, someone for whom there was no room. For example, Zeus in Greek mythology, he consorts with humans for the purpose of gratifying his sexual desire. Egyptians and Romans considered the kings and the rulers of the world to actually be avatars of their gods that they worshipped. But the Son of God had infinitely greater wealth and honor and power and authority than any of us could ever imagine. He had far greater glory than the false gods of Egypt or Greece or Rome. He is God. We saw this clearly two weeks ago. He is in the form of God. He enjoys equality with God. 
That means that all that is true of God is true of the Son of God. He is holy. He's all-powerful. He's just. He's self-existent. He's immense. He's eternal. He is uncreated, unfathomable, glorious, and good. You wouldn't expect such a being to lay it all aside. And yet the Son of God, light of light, true God of true God, laid aside the glories of heaven and became a tiny human embryo in the womb of Mary. Jesus' glory is actually his humility because his humility is surprising. Secondly, uh, secondly, consider with me that Christ's humility, not only is it surprising, but Christ's humility is profound. Christ's humility is profound. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Son of God didn't just lower himself to the level of angels. He didn't just lower himself to the level of the mighty kings and the rulers of the world, born in a palace. He took upon him the form of a servant, born to the wife of a carpenter, and laid in a manger. Uh, The beginning of verse 7 describes one of the most breathtaking mysteries of Scripture. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. That is, the union of two uh, hypostases. That's a Greek word that means an essential nature. Two essential natures joined together and united in one person. That is, while God, think about this, folks, God has one nature but exists in three persons. Jesus is one person, but he actually possesses two natures. He is both divine and human. He is God and man, and this is a profound, inseparable union. This reality became the subject of intense theological debate for centuries from the time of the early church and leading up to the Middle Ages. Uh, In an attempt, basically what happens is we human beings, we don't like that we don't understand God. We want to put God into the box that we can understand. And so we begin to make guesses about him and they end up being contrary to scripture. And this happened many times in, in church history early on. Uh, in the first century, many had begun to call into question not Christ's deity, but his humanity. These were the Docetists. They believed that Jesus appeared as a man, but really he wasn't a man. He was just kind of like a phantom of a person. Like he looked like a man, but he was more like a spirit that had a, 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 an appearance, but he wasn't really a man. This is why in First John, the beloved disciple reminds God's people, he says, that which our hands have handled, what we've touched, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, proclaim we unto you. We dined with him. He's fully human. Others would question his divinity, like Arius of Alexandria. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Later, Apollinarius taught that the Son of God kind of borrowed a human body, but he didn't actually have a human nature. He was kind of wearing an Edgar suit, right? Some of you will get that. That's literally, that's what he taught. He didn't call it an Edgar suit, but that's what he taught. Uh, Eutychus, the monk, later on began to teach that the divinity of the Son sort of mixed in with the humanity of Jesus, and he became sort of a hybrid of both, like a third thing. All of these heresies were patiently but vehemently refuted by God's church, and there's a very straightforward reason why. Think about this, folks. Who alone can forgive sins? Who has the authority to forgive sins? Only God. Only God can forgive sins. If Jesus isn't God, then he can't forgive sins. But only a man can represent men to God. So in order for us to have any hope of salvation, we have to have a Savior who is both God and man. Fully, completely. 
because that part of us that he does not take on himself is a part of us that cannot be saved. And the good news is, of course, that Jesus took on all of what it means to be a human being. He was completely and is completely human and yet remains completely God. And this is why from earliest times all Christians have uh, recognized that passages like Philippians 2 teach that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. We believe, as Christians have affirmed in the Nicene Creed, and some of what we just sang a few moments ago in that song, O Come All Ye Faithful, uh, just some deep theology in there that maybe it sounds a little foreign to our ears, but so important. But the Nicene Creed says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the one begotten from the Father before all the ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. Christ descended not just a step or two, but to the depths. He laid aside the honors and the accolades of heaven, and though God, he became a lowly infant. He entered into all that we are, yet without sin. All the weakness, all the temptations, all of the challenges of what it means to be a human being, he entered into all of it. He knew hunger and thirst and weariness and loneliness and longing and was tested in every way. What a profound humility. Christ's glory is actually his humility because his humility is surprising and because his humility is profound. In the third place, consider with me that Christ's humility is costly. Christ's humility is costly. In verses 7 and 8, we're reminded that not only did the Son of God take upon himself the lowliness of humanity when he became Jesus of Nazareth, but he takes it much, much further. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we in, we're sitting in a church, and it's very easy for us to gloss over words like that because we've taken the cross and, and we've made it into sort of a, we've made it a decoration, right? And I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that. But my point is this. The ancient people, it, it hit them differently because people were crucified all over the, the Roman Empire. The hills were littered with crosses, not as decorations, but implements of torture and death. Imagine coming into church today, and you walk into this room, and immediately you see a noose hanging down over the pulpit. I mean, you would be scandalized. You would say, I brought my kids today. What is wrong with you people? (laughs) But folks, this is the impact that something like a cross would have had on ancient people. Why? It's not because of the pain and the misery. Pain and misery were part of the ancient world in many ways. It's because the cross represented the curse of God and the rejection of all mankind. And Jesus took that on himself. He took the curse of God. And and, and I just can't emphasize enough that when our Savior took up his cross and began to walk towards Calvary, he was subjecting himself to the darkest possible curse, the greatest possible shame, and to think That his coming as a little infant in Bethlehem was all for that purpose, to live in obedience to the Father and to die like the lowest scum. That is costly humility. Why would he do that? 
Here's why. It's because, folks, unless he goes to the cross, unless he carries the curse, unless he feels the weight of the settled, burning, hot anger of God in his human body, then we have absolutely no hope. We're done. If he doesn't bear the curse, we are going to have to bear the curse. You say, how, how could it possibly be that bad? I mean, I'm a pretty good person. Cursed? Really? Isn't that a little strong? Why would, be, why, why would God be so angry at me? Why would God even care how I live? And the reason we're so shocked that Jesus might go to the cross, that he would bear the weight of the wrath of God in my place, like that God would be that settled in his opposition to the sins that we commit is because the the reason we don't understand that is because we don't understand who we are and we don't understand who God is. We think God is much, much, much less small, uh, much smaller, sorry, and much less good than he actually is. He's purely, righteously, unflinchingly, unfailingly good. He's large-hearted enough to care about everything we do. We think of ourselves as much less significant than we are. Like, who am I? It doesn't matter what I do. Why would God care what I do? But listen, folks, he made you for a purpose. He cares about every last part of your life. He cares infinitely more than you could begin to understand. We think because there's a lot of people like us, and most of them don't care about how we live. We can make our own decisions. We, we can chart our own course. We think that God is that way, but he is not that way. He is infinitely good, and he created us for a, a purpose, and he didn't make a mistake. And so when we take what he's made, our body and our minds and our souls, and when we twist them out of their created purpose, and we do with them what God hates... That bothers the God who made us. That makes him angry. He cannot look upon it. He cannot, in his infinite goodness, put up with his creatures who were designed to look like him, running in the opposite direction. He can't. And even if you think he should, folks, listen. Even if you think God is being unfair, listen, too bad. Because you don't write the rules. He does. So what is God going to do? There's only one way to save. God had to send himself. He had to send the Son of God. Nobody else had any right to forgive. And he had to send a man. Nobody else could represent us. And so the Son of God became Jesus. And he, sorry, he took it even further. And he became obedient to the point of death. And not just that, but the shameful, cursed death of crucifixion. So that our curse might be lifted. We just sang about this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his glories known far as the curse is found. Christ's glory is actually his humility because his humility is surprising. Because his humility is profound. Because his humility is costly. Fourthly, Christ's humility is rewarding. It's rewarding. Do you see that word in verse 9? <clears throat> What's the first word in verse 9? Therefore. Therefore, like on the basis of what I've just said, on the basis of Christ's surprising, profound, costly humiliation, 
God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's humility is rewarding. It serves as the basis for the Father's exaltation of him and all of creation's worship of him. And because the Son of God became the baby Jesus... And Jesus went to the cross and his body was laid in the tomb. The father loves to lift him high and to say, everybody, look, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, worship him, bow to him. And he invites all people everywhere to do so. And the son of God receives his reward, just as the prophet had predicted long before in Isaiah 53. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. And folks, every creature one day is going to see it. Every eye. And either in gratitude and wonder and joy or under the weight of the shackles of judgment, every angel, every spirit, every human being dead or alive is going to see and is going to bow the knee. And when that day comes, it won't be about who is the greatest athlete of all time or who is the richest person on earth or who is the greatest philanthropist of all time or who had the greatest ideas, who is the best scientist. None of that stuff is going to matter. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be all about one person, Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess this Jesus is Lord. And this morning, given that Jesus' glory is actually his humility, his humility, his surprising humility, his profound humility, his costly humility, his rewarding humility. There are two very obvious takeaways from this reality. If it's true that this is the case, then I plead with you, folks, I beg you, yes, even on Christmas morning, December 25th, 2022, I plead with you to bow the knee to him today, while you still have the choice instead of later when you do not have the choice. Bow to Him today in faith, in love, and worship instead of later as a convicted criminal. Folks, please, search the Scriptures. Pray for guidance from the Holy Spirit. Ask God to show you what is true. Ask Him to show you who Jesus is Meditate upon the empty tomb so that you might see him in his glory. Be convicted of your sin and just say, Jesus is Lord. I'm not the Lord. I've been trying to sit on the throne. I've been trying to be in charge of my life. I've been trying to direct my own steps. I've been going my own way. And that's wrong. And I know it's wrong. And I've, I've felt that in my heart. And I know that I've sinned. And I can't change myself. And I need a Savior. And Jesus is the only one. He's my only hope. Without him, I am dead. Without him, I am cursed. I I need a savior. I need a rescuer. And there's nobody else. Jesus, please save me. Please be my Lord. Takeaway number two. Have the mind of Christ. If it's true that his glory is actually his humility, then you must walk this path as well. Humble yourself, friends. Stop being so proud. Humble yourself in front of your spouse. Humble yourself in front of your children. Humble yourself in front of your 
parents, your co-workers, your church family, stop being so proud. This afternoon or sometime later this week when the table is set and you're, you're all eating and you're stuffing your face and you're looking around at these other people gathered around the table with you, you, you look at them and you think, this person, I'm going to put him in front of me. That person, I'm going to put her in front of me. I'm going to put myself last because Jesus did that for me. I'm going to take on the mind of Christ. I'll show the people in my life that I'm grateful for them. I'll be the one to wash the dishes joyfully, not grudgingly. I'll be the one to take a cold shower when everybody else is finished getting ready in the morning. I'll be the one that goes outside in the cold and warms up the car. You know, these are silly things, but folks, these are the little decisions that make up our our lifestyle. And we need to decide to humble ourselves and take on the mind of Christ. I'll show those people I love them and grateful for them that our little disagreements and arguments aren't going to get in the way of my love. I'm going to have the mind of Christ. And if you're going to do that, folks, if, if that is your strategy this week, if that's your goal, then you're going to need help. And you know that. You're going to need the Holy Spirit's help. And so as we take a moment here to respond to God's word today, I want to encourage all of us to, to bow to Christ, place our faith in him, renew our faith in him once again. And to ask the Holy Spirit, God, please help me. Help me to have the mind of Christ today. Help me to have the mind of Christ tomorrow and the next day, the rest of this week. Help me to humble myself and have that mentality, the Christmas mindset. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus who uh, just has done everything for us. He's lowered himself and, and laid aside his glory so that he could live in our place and die in our place. And Lord, so often we confess we, we've been proud. We've been self-centered. We've looked at the people in our family, the people in our workplace, the people in our church, and said, how can that person serve me? And Father, we need to turn it around, but we can't do that without your help. We need the Spirit to come and change our mind. Change the way that we think. Change the way that we calculate our worth and what constitutes a worthwhile life. Father, help us to humble ourselves right now as we respond to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.